can turn over in your Bibles or the bulletin to Haggai, chapter 2, verses 10 through 19 this morning. This is the third Sunday in Advent and the third of four prophecies in the book of Haggai, pointing us forward to our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll go to God in prayer. Our God, worthy of worship, you are due all praise and all honor. You are worthy to be sought far above all fine treasure, for you are perfect in your essence. You are pure and holy. You are patient with us, for we are consistently turning away from you toward the idols of our own hearts. Yet you have made provision in Christ that we might repent daily. In him you have turned curses into blessings. That you have pinned our certificate of debt to the tree and granted us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. By your Spirit, grant us eyes to see and ears to hear. Amen. Let's stand once again for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by, by Haggai the prophet, thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people, and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw out fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, Consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Amen. This is the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Uh, imagine that the kids come in from playing outside and they are full of mud. They get mud all over the floors and all over the walls, and everywhere that their grimy little hands touch is filthy. Uh, that doesn't take much imagination. Now imagine, this really is more of a pipe dream, uh, if their parents could wash their hands, the ch children's hands, and then they could go around with those clean hands, and everywhere they touched that was dirty became clean.
I steal this illustration from Alec Montier, um, and he says, helpfully, a dirty hand will leave a dirty mark, but a clean hand will not leave a clean mark. And this, I'm afraid, is a spiritual situation as well. Sin goes about mucking things up and, and proximity to the holy, to the, to the holy or to the sacred um, does not clean things up. And so the difficult question we have to probe is how are we who are filthy to come into the presence of God and how will we be made pure? And how will the righteous judgment of God and the subsequent curses due to us for our sin be turned away? How will cursing become blessing? I think this is the question at hand in this passage for those who are building the temple. Um, how will the filthy work of their hands become pure? And how will the resultant curses of their sin turn be turned to blessing? We'll look at this under three sort of broad headings today. And the first is just unavoidable con- uh, contamination. An unavoidable contamination. Uh, this, this third prophecy comes to the remnant of Judah through Haggai on December 18th, um, 520 BC, two months after the previous prophecy, three months after they begin working on, uh, the temple, and Yahweh brings through Haggai the prophet, um, this illustration, um, as he speaks to the priest. So verse 11, thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. So he's asking for a ruling. This is the priest's job. They're, they're scribes. They're re- really religious lawyers in one sense. So he says, give me a ruling. I want to ask the priest about the law. Um, this is their job, Leviticus 10. God says to Aaron in verse 10, um, and the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. So give, give me a ruling about the law here. Verse 12, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answers and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. So it was common to carry... Um, food, or not food, but items, they had, the garments that they wore were kind of a robe, and there was a way to carry items in your, in your garment, in your robe. I think of uh, when we carry tomatoes in from the garden, right? Sometimes our shirt, our belly might show, but we carry full of tomatoes. They're carrying something in their garment. Um, and in the Levitical system, some offerings, such as the sin offering, the, the entire animal was burnt on the altar, But other offerings, such as the peace offering, allowed the priest to take some of the meat from the animal and to eat it for themselves. But it was part of the offering. It was consecrated as to the Lord. So that's the meat that he's talking about, carrying in your fold. So his question is, if if the priest carries some of that consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and then that garment touches another piece of food or oil or some kind of um, item, food item, does that food become consecrated as well by virtue of being touched by the garment that was touched by the holy meat? And the answer is no. So, that this is, will the 
Will the clean hand leave a clean mark? That's the illustration there. But what about if a person touches a dead body and becomes unclean? In Levitical law, if you touch a dead body, human or animal, you become ceremonially unclean. And he asked if that person who's touched the dead body touches one of these food items, does that food item become unclean? And the answer is yes, it does. So the dirty hand leaves a dirty mark. Clean hand does not leave a clean uh, mark. So the point here is, is that holiness is not directly communicable. Uh, holiness does not come through contact with the sacred. While unholiness or impurity contaminates everything it touches. I think that's part of why James can say that if we stumble in one point of the law, we have become guilty of the whole thing. And why Paul says in one place that he's blameless as to the law, and in another place it's all filthy rags. It's all contaminated by sin. Sin taints everything. And the more we try to wipe the, the speck off of our garment with our dirty hands, the more we just spread the filth on our garment. So this, God says, is the issue for the remnant of the people of Judah. Uh, verse 14, Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with the, this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, and what they offered there is unclean. So everything they touch is like the opposite of the Midas touch. Um, everything they touch turns to, to filth. Be it the work of their hands, the work in the fields, uh, be it their religious rites, their, their sacrificial system, they offer sacrifices there in Jerusalem. Um, they're supposed to be offered as the, the people restored to Zion, and instead these sacrifices, God says, are unclean. Now we think that a sacrifice would be purifying. Um, it's an atoning act, right? We have to understand that the, the mere ritual, the mere external rites do not bring us into restorative fellowship with God. And the heart of true sacrifice is the heart of faith that reaches out to God with a sense of need. So faith is evidenced by genuine repentance. So as long as the people persisted in their procrastination to build the temple, they failed to, to begin work on the temple, they're committing the sin of disregard for their covenant Lord. And this sin is tainting everything that they do. You see in verse 17 the purpose of some of this. Um, he says, God says, I struck you and all the product of your toil with blight, with mildew, and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. That's, that's what God is after. Turn to me, come to me, seek me. Again, Matthew here, he's helpful. He says, the unbuilt house speaks of its unwanted residence. Then he, he quotes another commentator. This is, to me, striking. The skeleton of the ruined temple was like a dead body decaying and making everything contaminated. God's saying in verse 7, you don't want me. You don't want me. The unbuilt house speaks of its unwanted residence. That's the heart of the sin. But this day... This day that the Lord speaks, both of this this prophecy, the third one and the fourth, come on this day, December 18th, 520 B.C. It marks something of a turning point. 
there's a shift in the relationship between the, the remnant and Yahweh here. So the second heading um, is that curse turns to blessing. Curses turn to blessing. Verse 15, Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? So before this day, how were things going for you? And and he describes how things are going for them. And an echo of what we read in chapter 1, um, in verse 16 here, he says, When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to a wine vat to draw out 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail that you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. So their, their hard-heartedness, their procrastination, their refusal to, to seek the Lord has led to a breach in their relationship. And notice here, God himself says that he's the source of, of these issues that they're having. He says, I struck you and all the products of your toil. Uh, yet this is, this is not spiteful revenge by the Lord. He's um, not giving them entirely over to their sin. It really is the, the loving reminder and a chastisement to the people from, from their father to seek to restore this fellowship that they're meant to have. Okay, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. That's, that's the purpose of all this. Turn to me, come back to me. I've noted before in the last couple of sermons, but it's imperative that we understand these events in their covenantal context. Uh, these blights, these covenant curses are coming on them in accord with the covenant that God made with them at Mount Sinai. And you can read about this in places like Deuteronomy 28. Um, so these curses are severe on one level. Blight, mildew, hail for, for probably the better part of a decade and a half. And although they're severe, they really represent a small portion of what you read in a place like Deuteronomy 28. Um, and the full brunt of the curses that they already bore as they went into exile. So these are, are relatively speaking, gentle reminders from Yahweh as just don't, don't do what your fathers did. Don't reject me as God like your fathers did. Come back to me. Turn to me. So in chapter 1, God points these things out in order to call them to repentance. But I think here, this, this time he's actually bringing these th things up by way of contrast. Um, because this time the people have repented. They're starting to work on the temple. And there's this shift taking place now from curses to blessings. So he says, consider from this day onward in light of the curses that you've been experiencing. And then, that, that's in verse 15. And then in verse 18... Now, the same language, consider from this day forward what is to come. So consider in light of what you've experienced what is to come. Verse 18, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the oil, olive tree, have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. So we ask them to consider, yet again, consider this time looking ahead. From this day, the day of the foundation of the temple, when stone was laid upon stone, what is going to happen? 
What will be the result of your repentance? Now we, we know that from Ezra that they had laid the, the foundation of the temple like 16 years prior. Um, so this idea here, and I think of stone upon stone and, and the foundation being laid speaks more not of, of foundations in the strict sense, but in the sense of, of fresh beginnings, that the work has begun again in earnest. Um, and really they began work, we, we read three months prior, but I mean, you think if we started to build a, a church building, I mean, it would take us months to just get the logistics figured out and gather materials, and we can, in theory, call Home Depot and have them deliver materials. So th- this is probably the, the moment when they begin laying stone upon stone, or some commentators think that maybe there was an official sort of dedication ceremony on this day or something like that. But uh, whatever the case God is zeroing, zeroing in on this day as the day of the beginning of repentance of the, the remnant and the first day of curses uh, being turned to, to blessing. There's some ambiguity as to the, the meaning of verse 19. Um, it can be read negatively. That is to say, God is still kind of going on about the curses that have befallen them. Or it can be read positively, which to me is the better interpretation um, because of the flow of the text and some agricultural considerations. So if it's negative, God would be saying, do you have any seeds stored up? And the answer would be no. Where we've been cursed, we're famished here. Have the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate or the olive trees produce fruit? Uh, No, we we don't have any of these things. This is the result of their hardness of heart. That would be the negative interpretation but the time of year is significant here. Um, this is December 18th. Um, so the grain crops in Palestine were generally planted in October and November. The early rains would be that would allow them to plow the fields and plant and germinate crops. Um, so usually that's the, the seed would already be in the ground here by December 18th. <clears throat> Taking this into consideration, then positively, he's asking, is there any seed in the barns uh, or probably better storage pits? Um, And the obvious answer would be no, it's under the ground, it's in the earth, it's germinating for next year. And the vine, the figs, the pomegranates, the olives, um, have they produced fruit? Uh, Of course not. We harvest those in September, August and September. So, verse 16 spoke of these attempts to forecast something agricultural societies were pretty good at. And and they kept coming up short. Their expectations came up short. When you came to a heap of 20 measures, there were 10. When you came to the wine vat for 50, there were 20. Their forecasts were always short. They were always lacking. But here in 19, God is saying, the seed is in the ground. The fruits, they haven't even bloomed or budded yet, but I I will forecast this year's results. And it will be nothing like these previous years of struggle. In verse 19, but from this day on I will bless you. So to summarize, before we talk about some implications, uh, a dirty hand leaves a dirty mark. But a clean hand does not leave a clean mark. 
So the labors and the sacrifices of the people, they were tainted by their sin. And the result was that God enacted in his faithfulness covenant curses upon them as a means to to call them back to himself. And for years now, they they had not been listening. They had not been tuned in to what God is trying to communicate to them. But today, the day that stone is laid upon stone, when repentance actually begins to be enacted, God promises that curses turn into blessings for them. So that to me is kind of the trees. I want to take a step back from the trees and look at the forest. And I want to think about this passage again in relation to the rest of Scripture. And I think Scripture forces us to ask the question, what kind of blessing is this? That they have. What what kind of blessing? And that's the, the third heading here. What kind of blessing? The obvious question I think that arises as we read through Haggai is does our obedience mechanically link to our relative blessings or cursings? And I, I dealt with this some in chapter one already, but the answer is mostly no. There are forms of suffering that come upon us that are not directly tied to our sin and disobedience. And likewise, the the destruction of the wicked awaits them, many of them, and in the meantime, they do enjoy material comforts and blessings. Um, Broadly speaking, and this is the idea in, in some of the Proverbs, that God's ways do work. If we follow God's principles, the principles of the Creator, they will be beneficial to us as as a general rule. And we'll see blessing for obedience. But what kind of blessing is God talking about here when he says, I I will bless you from this day forward? Um, And I think there's three things to keep in mind. Um, This blessing, first of all, is covenantal. So I've already said that much of this book seems to be grounded in the Sinai Covenant. And, of course, it's ultimately rooted in the the covenant with Abraham, the covenant of grace. Um, I will be your God, you will be my people. But the point of reference here of these blessings and curses seems to be the Sinai covenant. So this blessing is covenantal in relation to to Moses. Second, this blessing is conditional. So while the covenant of grace can't be undone, there are many elements of the covenant of Sinai that that are conditional. Um, to the degree that the nation follows the, the commands of God and follows him exclusively, they will be blessed, he says, in the promised land. But much of the Old Testament dis- demonstrates the extraordinary unfaithfulness of Israel and the really extraordinary pace, patience of the Lord. And, and so because of their unfaithfulness, they suffer these covenant consequences. And thus... We see here that for for God, the the point of demarcation is stone upon stone. When they've repented, when they've begun to seek the Lord in his presence in their midst, in earnest, then at that point the covenant curses are turned to blessing. As a result then, um, and this is part of reading this passage in light of the Bible, is that these blessings are temporary. They're temporary. Unfortunately, this commitment to the Lord that they're expressing here as they build the temple is not very long-lived, historically speaking. 
Um, the, the, and, and then therefore neither are the blessings that go with it. In other words, when God says, from this day on I will bless you, I think there's a foundational understanding that their blessing in the promised land is still contingent on their faithfulness to the Lord, which they demonstrate that they lack, ultimately. So the book of Malachi is really all about this, highlights the unfaithfulness of the people and the resultant removal of the blessing. So if you'd like to follow along, you can turn a few pages over to Malachi chapter 2, just a couple examples. Malachi 2, and we'll look at 1 and one through 3 first. God says, And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. It doesn't hold back. This, this comes after the book of Haggai. They're, they're still not listening to the Lord. And he says the covenant curses are going to come upon you once again. And then just a few verses down in, in verses 13 through 14 of chapter 2. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So ultimately, these these blessings that God talks about are are temporal. God does away with them in Malachi, and then Malachi ends, and there's 400 years of silence, and and that's it for the, the Old Testament. I think that this broader view of this passage in Haggai, uh, in light of the scope of Scripture, kind of leaves us in a lurch. What really is the blessing here? What is the hope? And I would say, first of all, that that lurch is satisfied more in the next passage that we'll get into uh, on Christmas Eve next Sunday. But of course, I'm going to save that for next week. So, um, But within this context of this unusual story, I still see the grace of God in a way that points us to his ultimate blessing in Christ. So that's the fourth heading, set of three, I think, but we have four. Um, and that is ultimate blessing, ultimate blessing. So if these people are impure, their works of their hands are impure, surely the work of this temple is tainted as well. Uh, in fact, I think that's part of the point, at least, is that they will not become pure merely by proximity to the temple or by building the temple. You remember before Judah went into exile, God warned the people, don't treat the temple like a talisman, as though this building is somehow an automatic guarantee of the favor of the Lord. He says in Jeremiah 7, 3-7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. So these are words that false teachers are saying. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. 
For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly examine, execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. So it's not the temple itself. It's not the temple that, that is the real presence of, of the Lord. It's not the temple itself that, that cleanses the people. And yet, God continues in covenant faithfulness to his people. He continues to allow them into fellowship with himself. I'm just reminded of the standard that we see in Psalm 24. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Who shall come into the, into the presence of God? The answer is, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. That's the standard. And these people do not meet that standard, that perfect standard, by any means after generations of idolatry and unfaithfulness. And indeed for ourselves, how do, how do we come into the presence of the Lord with our own dirty and impure hands and hearts? Uh, if we as as human beings want to to keep a object in pristine condition, uh, one of the things that we can do in kind of extreme measures is to to build a clean room for this item. So you you can have this room, and then you can go and you, you have to change your clothes and suit up in a in a goofy white suit with a with a hood, and you got to take an air shower right, um, and you, before you can go into this this clean room, and in order to keep it from being Contaminated. I was just thinking, imagine if, if, say, the disciples really grasped the the fullness of who Jesus was and his purity. And the height of his perfection, I think one obvious response would be Peter's, go away from me, I'm a sinful man. But uh, maybe another response is, is to guard him. Everybody stand back, don't touch Jesus. Meanwhile, Jesus is over there putting his hand on a leper. And what happens? The lep- he touches the leper. The, the bleeding, impure woman touches his garment. And he's not contaminated. They're purified. So, so, so the illustration that God gives about the law is reversed with Jesus. A clean hand does leave a clean mark. And in that sense, he's the perfect great high priest. As a priest, nothing can make him impure. He he makes everything he touches pure. And for those of us with, with faith in him who are united to him by faith, he brings us purified as his people into the very holy of holies. And as a sacrifice, Jesus, he, he took the sin of the people on himself. The, the filth was transmitted to himself. And, and his pure righteousness was transmitted to us, imputed to us. So I, I think, for me, the, the lurch of this passage in its context um, is a good advent lurch because it leads us to 
to the desire for the coming of Christ, for the coming of the new and better covenant, the covenant that is superior to the covenant that was made with Moses. And so in that light, I'd like to just end by a reading um, from Hebrews chapter 8. And you're welcome to turn there if you want to follow along. I'm just going to read the whole thing, 1 through through 13. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand at the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not like the house that I made with their the covenant that I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Praise God for the new covenant in Christ. Amen.